Welcome to Have You Heard. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich. I'm the Executive Director of AABP. And today we're joined by uh, a team of AABP members who are our associate editors for the Bovine Practitioner, which is AABP's peer-reviewed publication. Today, we're going to talk about the Bovine Practitioner. We're going to talk about the content of the Bovine Practitioner uh, and how it's relevant to all of us that practice on cattle, as well as why uh, researchers, as well as practitioners, should consider submitting papers to the Bovine Practitioner and, and talk about some of the new things we're doing with our journal. So uh, joining us today, we're going to have our guests introduce themselves, and we're going to start with Dr. Virginia Fate. Virginia? Hi, Fred. I'm Virginia Fate. I'm a clinical pharmacologist at Texas A&M University, where I do some teaching and some research um, all about related to um, drug use in animals. And um, I'm an Auburn grad and did some graduate work at Iowa State, and I've been at Texas A&M for um, quite a long time now. <laughs> Thanks, Virginia. Next, we have Dr. Aurora Villarreal. Hi, Fred. Um, well, my name is Aurora. I'm originally from Spain, and uh, I am an epidemiologist. I've been here in the States now for 22 years and uh, working mostly with uh, data, and uh, I've pretty much uh, done it all. Academia, industry, uh, out at the farms, and uh, so my Main focus is the practical application of everything. Fantastic. And we also are joined by Dr. Sarah Kapik. Sarah? Hey, everyone. I'm Sarah Kapik. I am currently a research assistant professor with Texas A&M AgriLife Research and then Texas A&M School of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. I mostly research bovine respiratory disease, but I'm originally from Florida, did my DVM at the University of Florida and my PhD in epi at K-State. And finally, we have Dr. Miles Thur. Miles? Hello, Fred. Uh, Miles Thur here, uh, research director with Veterinary Research and Consulting Services. Uh, we are primarily a feedlot veterinary consulting group that provides services for, for feed yards uh, across the United States. And I've been with our organization uh, for coming on six years now, uh, coordinating our research projects and overseeing the, the database side. And so did my uh, undergrad and DVM and PhD program all at Kansas State University. So a lot of purple, purple in my blood <laughs> and uh, look forward to being here today. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about, and we're going to start off with Miles because uh, uh in his practice as our former editor of the Bovine Practitioner. And Dr. Bob Smith just did a tremendous job uh, pushing the journal to where it is today uh, and uh, was our editor for many, many years. Uh, and so, Miles, talk a little bit about uh, Dr. Smith's role and what he did with the journal and then the history of the Bovine Practitioner. Yeah, I'm very fortunate that uh, Dr. Smith uh, provided a lot of guidance uh, for me and for, for the stepping into this role and, and really took the, the journal to the next steps. And so he came on to it at the editor uh, in 1998 and through 2021 and was the one that started to, to implement uh, the peer review process. And so that allowed uh, people to review the articles to ensure scientific rigor and, and there's appropriateness for uh, practitioners in the field to, to make decisions decisions. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the practice, bovine practitioner has been a, um, 
been initially published since uh, continuously since 1967, and we're currently up to volume 56. Uh, and now we are fortunate enough we have two volumes a year uh, that, that what we provide, and all that information is, is available for for the memberships to make informed decisions in their daily practice. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, Dr. Smith can uh, I think work circles around everyone that I know, and just did a tremendous job with uh, uh, implementing the peer review process in the journal. Uh, and, and I really enjoy uh, looking through the old volumes too, that's here in the, in the AABP headquarters. But one of the projects that, that uh, uh, Dr. Smith initiated with the former executive director of AABP, Dr. Gates Riddell, was developing a, 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 an agreement with Texas A&M University with their medical uh, library, where we are now utilizing the online journal system, and they took all of our publications and 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 put them online. Virginia, uh, you're at Texas A&M. I know you were uh, uh, involved with uh, uh, pushing that through for AABP as well. So, can you talk a little bit about that project with Tamu and what does that mean to people that want to access the journal? Yeah, so Texas A&M, um, the Medical Sciences Library, and the um, um, digital office of um, digitization and whatever they call themselves um, uh, uh, signed this agreement several years ago. And what they did was take all of those um, hard copies of journals, like Fred was talking about and scanned them page by page um, with extremely high resolution archive quality, essentially digital copies and then those um, digital um, scans were turned into high quality PDFs and uploaded to this online journal system. So there's a it's an open source platform that is used by multiple other journals um, and um, you design your own um, site for your particular journal. And so it's customized to to the bovine practitioner um, and all of the. Uh, journals from from the very first were scanned in and article by article uploaded so that you can um, for free these are all open access you can for free access um, every page of the publication um, from from its um, inception so it was a really cool project it took a long time it was a lot of um it, it it i i was not directly involved in in the project i just heard reports about what was happening um, but when you involve um, a library digitization team, you have catalogers and indexers. And so it's a um, it's a it's a big project and it. Um, it means a lot. I think that the journal and ABP committed to that approach to um, then manage an archive of these um, of these PDFs and these um, journal scans. So the the other great thing about having it all online is it's searchable. So if you know an article was published in the Bovine Practitioner, you can search by author, by a keyword, by title, um, and, and all that sort of thing. But now that it's open access and, um, and available for free online, Google Scholar will, um, it, it will pick up those citations. And so if you search in Google Scholar, you can also search um, the Bovine Practitioner is indexed in um, cab abstracts, which is a cabby product. Not everyone has access to that, but, but it is, um, indexed there. And so they will also show up in, um, cab abstracts, but often the, um, titles will show up in a Google Scholar search 
um, if you're looking for, um, in general, looking for bovine related articles. Um, there are, you can still get a print copy. Fred can help you with that. Um, and the other thing is that you can go to the online site as a, as a reader. You can go to that site and sign up to get notifications. Um, and you can also, if you're interested in being a peer reviewer, you can create an account and, um, and declare what your expertise is um, and potentially get tapped to peer review um, of articles that get submitted to the journal. And then the online system is easier for authors to submit their articles um, and it's much easier for us to manage the review process behind the scenes when everything is uploaded um, onto this um, online journal system. Yeah, and it's I, I'm just so thankful to uh, AABP, uh, to our previous leaders for initiating this project. I'm incredibly thankful to Texas, Texas A&M. Uh, Heather Moberly was very instrumental in, in getting this to work for us. We were kind of a pilot project for that team uh, to take an organization and get their journals digitized this way. And, and it was just a tremendous amount of work, tens of thousands of pages uh, uh, that, they, that they digitized. And, and I remember when the board discussed this, they previously, the bovine practitioner was only available to members. Um, we, we put them on our site as PDFs that were searchable, but not the way they are now. Uh, and then you could purchase a print volume, but, you know, our sales of print volumes have, has declined significantly and, uh, and which is natural because most of us read things online now. And so just really thankful for that. And I would strongly encourage our members to look at the links in the podcast notes, sign up for that, uh, uh, site. Uh, so they can receive notifications because we will be publishing articles uh, at the article level in the future. And I want to just reiterate what Virginia said about authors is that all of our submissions are now managed online. The peer review process, everything, we're going to talk a little bit about that later. Uh, but I think that that is going to make the process of submission for authors very modernized, very user-friendly. So I uh, would suggest everyone check that out. And you can go to the publications menu on the AABP website. And as an aside, our proceedings from annual conference are all there as well. Uh, uh, the 50-plus years of annual conferences, as well as our uh, recent graduate conferences are all available online as well. So lots of information there uh, for everyone. And hopefully we can get, as Miles said, uh, get this uh, uh, research and, and uh, publications into the hand of practicing veterinarians. And Aurora, that brings us to you. What's the content of our journal for, for folks that may not be aware of it? And, and talk a little bit about the relevance to private practitioners. You said you've been in all areas of, of, of the veterinary uh, industry, including private practice. Talk a little bit about the importance of having that um, evidence-based research in the hands of private practitioners. Yeah, so that's actually the main reason that I volunteered to be an associate editor for the bovine practitioner. I really wanted to make sure that that focus, that initial focus for clinicians uh, didn't get lost somewhere down, down the road. So if you read uh, on the website, what the bovine practitioner is about. It's to promote the art and science of bovine medicine, surgery, repro, diagnostics, production, and welfare, right? So they, they, all of these things have been added over time. But the 
to me, the main thing is the art and the science. And the science is there all the time. And there's a lot of people in the background making sure that the science is sound. But the art is being lost a little bit. So one of the things that I do want to come out of this podcast is for clinicians to not get scared to submit articles. There's um, there's stuff. Everything that we want to publish is so that it it is relevant to the clinician so that you can apply it next day. The next time you see an animal with whatever you just read. Uh, and for that reason, we actually have a section. I know Sarah is going to be talking about all the different types of articles, but there's one section specifically that I want to call the attention of uh, the listeners, and that is the section on innovative techniques. That uh, you can submit practice tips, you can submit how-tos, like a new surgery technique or something that you did that uh, it, it was it gave you a different outcome. It is going to be reviewed. So it's not just like you submit it, it will be published. It, it is going to be reviewed by people to make sure that is scientifically um, uh, sound. But think about a practice tip as like a cool case that you have that, that has a really cool clinical relevance for maybe the young veterinarians on, on the list, right? On, the, on, on ABP. So I always give this example of a cow that I, I, I was presented with, and I ended up doing a DA a surgery on her, and she was seven months pregnant. And I remember just being kicked constantly while I was doing the DA, and she calved two months later with twins. Who would have thought that a cow seven months pregnant with twins would have had a DA? Well, she did. So my conclusion of that is never, ever uh, leave a cow without checking for a DA. So something like that. And if it doesn't qualify for the for the journal itself, you submitted it, we read it, and we look at it and say, this is really cool. Let's put it in the newsletter or let's put it here if it doesn't completely qualify for the journal. So the main thing is this is for clinicians and do not shy away from, from submitting to the uh, journal. One other thing, we do uh, accept publications about small ruminants. And for last, clinicians are needed as reviewers. I am always looking when I assign reviewers, I always, always, always look, is there a clinician in the list that I can assign this to so that I make sure that this is clinically relevant? Because this is what we're looking for, clinically relevant articles. Yeah, and uh, uh, well said, Aurora, and, and I hope that as our listeners are driving around in their trucks today and they're seeing cases or think about some cases that they've had, maybe they can think, hey, I could maybe uh, uh, think about getting this published. And I'm certain that uh, uh, our team here is more than willing to uh, um, talk with private practitioners and help connect you with people that will assist in that. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, but Sarah, let's talk a little bit about the types of articles, because uh, many of our listeners that are private practitioners may not understand the difference in the types of articles that they're reading in journals. And a lot of them are, are research articles, but there's many others as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we have three main types of articles that we accept at the bovine practitioner. Uh, the first would be those typical research articles that you think of. They That would include experimental and observation studies, uh, systematic and scoping reviews, and um, they're, they're pretty typical to what you would find in other journals. And then we also take descriptive studies such as case reports 
and case series, which generally um, have more detailed descriptions and of five cases, at least five cases, right? Um, and then the innovative techniques that Aurora already mentioned. Um, and we also take review articles. Um, and we have all the criteria listed out for, for kind of how to decide what type of article you have in the author guidelines. And I know any of us would be more than happy to help any um, potential submitters decide what type of article they have and, and which route they should follow through to publication. If you want to get in touch with any of us, that would be totally fine. Yeah. And speaking of author guidelines, I know that this team spent quite a bit of time uh, writing new author guidelines, updating them based on the template that we had previously, but recognizing that we're now accepting our, our, our articles online. And, uh, um, one of those things, uh, Miles, uh, is that we have a masked review process. Can you talk about what that is? How, why is it important? especially when we consider that we're kind of a small organization and uh, and also what should people pay attention to in those author guidelines? Sure. The, so the author guidelines you indicated, we, we spent a lot of time um, putting some information in there to provide guidance over how, how the paper needs to be formatted, what information needs to be included for each of the various sections and with that, and so provides a lot of information um, when you're looking to start to to create a, a submission over how do you, how to prepare that and put the information what's required as part of the process and, and in the specified order. The, the mask review process was um, something that was previously um, a component of the of the journal and something that the, the, new, the new associate editors continued to make make a key component uh, in that process. And so, with that, we um, what that process does is so when we send these articles out for review to make sure that is scientific rigor, appropriate study, and is relevant to our membership, all of the author identification, all of the funding information uh, is removed um, from the manuscript. And so the reviewers do not know who submitted the article um, and, and where the funding came from. And, and we chose to do that to to re eliminate biases uh, between, you know, we are a small group of bovine veterinarians that, and we all know each other, some uh, fortune us to, to work with, with colleagues. And so having taken that information away allows us to be more pure in, in our scientific review process. And so when you are submitting new articles for um, to the OJS system, we ask that you go ahead and remove your author identification and by placing X's into that information. And also another component about that is removing the location where the study occurred because people um, can be able to identify which um, maybe which colleagues performed that um, study um, and then also the funding sources. So placing all that information in X's uh, prior to submissions. It's important to, to realize uh, if uh, upon acceptance of the article and in the copy editing sta stage, that information is, is still very important and we'll, and we'll, um, we will ask you to provide that information back into the, the article during the copy editing stages. Yeah, well said. And we, we spent a lot of time 
uh, looking through those uh, author guidelines, updating them. We're going to provide a link in the podcast notes to the author guidelines. Just make sure that if you're submitting a paper that you read those. And if you have questions, reach out to myself or our associated editors. Our contact information is right in those author guidelines. Uh, and, and we're, we're uh, uh, always open to uh, ask any questions uh, so we can address those things before you submit the paper to make sure that you're uh, following those author guidelines. Uh, Virginia, we, we touched a little bit on the peer review process, uh, and maybe you could talk a little bit about how we manage the peer review process. And then you also mentioned about signing up to be a reviewer and, and, and the importance of us having enough reviewers to, to tap. So talk a little bit about that. Please. When um, a submission comes in to the journal, um, an editor is assigned. So there's four of us um, and essentially we rotate, um, take turns as submissions um, are, are uh, entered into the system. And um, our our initial job is to ensure that author guidelines have been followed and that the submission is masked appropriately, like Miles just talked about. And so sometimes um, we will reject a submission, um, not because we think it's a bad submission, but because it needs to be uh, managed by the author so that it is masked appropriately. So we reduce bias as much as possible and so that our um, guidelines are followed. So that reviewers know where to find things and so that our um, journal has a consistent um, appearance. And so um, we, each of us as associate editors, we all have our own networks of scientists and clinicians who we know. And the within the journal system, the online journal system, there is a database of reviewers. So people who have reviewed in the past or people who have indicated that they're interested in reviewing. Um, and we all, each of us uses probably a slightly different process in terms of how we decide um, who to invite as reviewers. Um, myself, um, I will sometimes, um, because I've invite, been invited to peer review for this purpose, if my, um, if an article that is submitted cites another article that is relevant, then I might pick one of those people to ask them to be a peer reviewer. There are a number of ways that we all use our networks to try to find peer reviewers. Um, and so so that we peer review is performed by a broad swath of the profession who understands bovine practice. <clears throat> we want to make sure and not just use the same reviewers over and over again. And so reviewers are, are invited to perform reviews. And then we have some guidance. We There's a, actually a form that you would fill out as a reviewer that kind of goes through questions about each, each section of, um, of the article that you're reviewing. So um, many people who do peer review regularly, you know, are familiar with, with how to do it. But I think if you're new to peer review, uh, we give you some guide, guidance on exactly how to, how to think about reviewing. Um, and, you know, checking some um, some sort of checklists. Um, if you haven't peer reviewed for the bovine practitioner before, if you go to the ABP website under publications and go to the bovine practitioner, there's a, a, a link to register and you can register as a user and then um, indicate your interest as a peer reviewer and, and tell us what your area of expertise is. Because I will use uh, my associate editors and I will use keywords, for example, to look through our database of reviewers to see who maybe is um, has expertise in epidemiology or in internal medicine or um, record systems or, you know, those kinds of things. So the more keywords you can help provide in terms of what your expertise is, the better. 
<clears throat> and um and and so my advice for reviewers is um imagine what you like to get when you get peer re- when your own articles are peer reviewed and just because the process is masked doesn't give you the opportunity to um lose your compassion and kindness in providing useful constructive criticism and also provide um feedback like this is a really great table or this explanation here, your rationale is clear. Um, this is a well-written um, introduction or, you know, whatever. So providing that kind of feedback is really helpful to authors. And so I always try to remember when I'm doing, when I'm peer reviewing an article is what would I want to read if I was the author of this paper? Um, and so I'm, and I take the time to um, be um, supportive and constructive rather than just saying, this is a bad paper, you should rewrite it because that's not really helpful. That doesn't help the author's you know, uh, make changes that they need to uh, sign up to, for peer review. Or if you are, if you would like to be a peer review, you can certainly contact us as well. And we can help you um, get signed up. And, um, and the other thing is if someone uh, asks you, one of us asks you to peer review, if you really don't have the time, let us know as soon as possible, because that delays the process for the authors. Um, if we don't get um, answers right away from from reviewers that, that we ask to review. So please help us out by being timely in your responses, whether it's in your I can't I don't have time to do this right now or this is outside my area of expertise. Or, and also, if you agree to review, it's really helpful. And it's you know, it's hard on authors to go. I, I submitted my paper three months ago and I haven't heard anything. Um, and it's because we're chasing down reviewers. So um, help us out. Peer review is such an important process, part of the scientific process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of it as just as important as writing papers. And so um, so help us out. That, those are really great comments, Virginia. And I also want to remind our listeners that you don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be an epidemiologist and, and be able to review the stats. We'll, if, 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 if our associate editors, they'll uh, uh, select reviewers uh, uh to make sure that we're accomplishing that, I can tell you that myself personally, in private practice, I have a veterinary degree only. Dr. Smith asked me to review a paper that was related to dairy practice because he wanted to know if it was relevant to private dairy practice. And I read the paper and reviewed it based upon that perspective. So I would encourage our listeners, if you're interested in contributing uh, in helping AABP, I think the more reviewers the larger reviewer pool we have, the better. And and certainly, as Virginia said, if if you feel like you don't have the expertise to review that paper, just go ahead and say so. But but if you're interested, uh, please sign up, as Virginia said, and we'll have some links in there, and we're we're happy to help you with that as well. Uh, Aurora, uh, going back to the author guidelines, and I know we've all talked a little bit about the frustration about people not reading the author guidelines. So that's probably our number one tip. If you're going to submit a paper, make sure you read the author guidelines. Uh, and Miles talked about the masking process, but there's some other maybe little details in there that, uh, uh, submitters should make sure that they're, uh, uh, following those author guidelines. What would some of those big, uh, tips be? Yeah, so the main the main problem that we've all found is the lack of anonymity. So that part that uh, Miles was talking about, Xing things out, uh, all of us we've already done desk rejects where we just say, "Hey, you need to you need to anonymize this." Think about it. If you get 
to read a paper, um, you have to evaluate a paper and it says, and you guys that know me are, you know that I'm dairy oriented. So I'm going to talk dairy here. Uh, I did this study on a 10,000 cow dairy and that's it. Then you just look at it and say, okay, it's a 10,000 cow dairy. But if I say, I did this study in, t in a 10,000 cow dairy in Texas versus I did this study in a 10,000 dairy in Spain versus I did this uh, study in a 10,000 dairy in China. Now your brain is biased. You, it's, it's, it's impossible not to be biased. And so the reviewers cannot be biased when they review the article. And this is why this is so, so, so important. Um, The next one um, that tends to be the biggest problem after the lack of anonymity is actually uh, the tables and the figures are not all cited or included at the end of the article. So say, for example, that um, they say, hey, look in figure two, I am, uh, I I'm showing this. And then you go find figure two and it's not there. Or uh, table... Uh, one is here, table two, table three, and then you go into text and tables two and three are not mentioned. I've already rejected several of those. So make sure that every table and every figure is cited in the text and the results, and it is included at the end, and they're all in order. So don't go table one, two, three, seven, eight. There's a four, five in between, a four, five, six. So um, a couple other things. Uh, they haven't been as, uh, as frequent, but uh, they are there. Uh, incorrect or missing sections for the type of article. So say that you have a research article and you don't include the materials and methods, then it's not a research article. You cannot publish that. We need to be able to see the materials and methods. Um, the other things that we have seen are uh, conflicts of interest uh, not uh, spelled out and the funding also not spelled out. We have two other things. That it's the prerogative of the associate editor to just cut off uh, right there and say this is a desk reject for concerns. And these concerns are going to be animal welfare during the research Uh, so obviously several of us are going to look at that and say, what do you think? What do you think uh, this? Yeah, this is a problem. We, we cannot publish this. And so that one will be a reject. The others that I mentioned before are going to be, Hey, we're going to desk reject it right now. Go ahead and, um, fix all of these things and submit it again. So that's not a big deal. The animal welfare is a big deal. Obviously the last one that will be, uh, Desk reject, uh, hard one. We've never seen this yet, or I haven't seen it, but uh, it's something important to keep in mind, and that is unprofessional conduct. So things like plagiarism. Obviously, we don't want to fall into that, so that one will be a big one that we are going to be looking after, and um, the paper will be rejected. I want to um, do a shout-out here for international authors. As I am originally from Spain, Uh, you've probably noticed that sometimes my English sentences are a little bit weird and it's because I might be thinking in Spanish and translating into, into English or German for that, for, for that matter. Anyway, my, my suggestion here, these are just uh, tips for, um, non-native English speakers that are submitting articles, which we accept from all over the world. Uh, just a couple of things. 
the main thing is short sentences. We tend to make huge sentences in Spain and just link one after another after another. Uh, so just separate each idea in one sentence. Uh, the other thing is use common words. Like use, don't utilize. It's, so instead of saying I, I utilize this, just say I use this. It sounds good. It's okay. And it's understandable. And then um, if you don't know what word would be good there or you're, you're trying to figure out is that the right, um, the right word to use here or there, there's resources online. Like uh, I love to use uh, visual thesaurus. And uh, it gives me like a spider web of what words are similar to the one that I want to use. And I actually can search in Spanish or in German and uh, because my brain goes to those languages and then it gives me the those words in English. So I use it a lot. I actually have a subscription uh, for it. And so finally, I just want to echo uh, Virginia's um, plea for peer reviewers. And please, please, please make sure that you put your expertise in there because we do use that. If you just say, hey, I'm a clinician, uh, are you a beef clinician? Are you a dairy clinician? Are you a small ruminant? Uh, what are your interests? Uh, we need to know that. So, and again, that shout out for the clinicians. I really appreciate those international uh, tips, Aurora. And I think you bring some uh, really great value to this team of associate editors with that perspective. Uh, and, and Aurora said, you know, in our author guidelines, she brought that perspective to make sure that we were uh, uh, being inclusive and, and inviting our international colleagues to also submit to the bovine practitioner. And we do get uh, international papers and we encourage uh, our international colleagues in the veterinary industry and animal health industry to submit to the bovine practitioner. So uh, thank you so much for saying that, Aurora and Sarah. Let's talk a little bit about a word that maybe many of our members are not familiar with, but our academics and researchers certainly are, and that's impact factor. And it is a recognizable struggle with the bovine practitioner. Taking that into perspective, our impact factor or our lack of it, why would a, why should a researcher or, or a clinician uh, submit a paper to the bovine practitioner? Yeah, so first of all, impact factor is a metric that's calculated it to help um, readers of the journal understand the impact of the journal. And typically impact factor or journal impact factor is calculated um, by a particular company um, as the as the average of the sum of the citations received in a given year compared to a journal's previous two years of publication, divided by the sum of citable publications in the previous two years. Okay, so basically, when you're looking at an, an impact factor, you're comparing between journals, and they're usually along the lines of a, a number that's ultimately given, and you compare, and that kind of gives you an idea of the ultimate impact of the journal. And, and unfortunately, like I think we're all aware, there is there's often no one perfect metric for measuring something, and there are pros and cons to impact factors. There are also other metrics that can be used to evaluate a journal's impact um, across the, the publishing world. Those are calculated in different ways. But uh, the biggest thing is that the bovine practitioner doesn't currently have 
an impact factor calculated. Because it is not indexed in the two um, indexes that are used to calculate the impact factors. So it's not possible until we get the bovine practitioner indexed in those indexes to actually receive an impact factor. And what this really means, it doesn't necessarily have an impact on a, a practitioner, but for researchers that are associated with an academic institution or another entity that uses the impact factor to compare um, and, and measure the impact of the papers that that particular researcher is submitting, it can have um, an effect on your, your reviews, your uh, promotions, et cetera, and, and how your, your science is perceived. Right or wrong, whether it's a good a good metric or not. And, and we could, we could definitely talk about that for a very long time. Um, but that's basically what impact factor is. So Sarah, uh, academics understand what impact factor is. Why do you think you're an academic? Why do you think that, uh, academics and, and, and other researchers should consider, uh, submitting to the bovine practitioner? That's a great question. And so I think that the bovine practitioner has a couple uh, pretty big pros uh, for academics, even without an impact factor. And and of course, not every academic institution puts the same weight on impact factors. So if you're at an institution that doesn't necessarily put a lot of weight on that, um, it may not matter to you. But beyond that, uh, one of the biggest things we have is that the bovine practitioner does not charge any publication fees, which is awesome. Um, lots of journals charge either by the page or for the manuscript, and they, it can get pretty expensive, you know, in the tune of several thousand dollars, uh, depending on where you're publishing and, and in what format. But having an, an option for no publication fees is pretty awesome. We also publish at the article level. It's something we started doing um, when we kind of restructured things a little bit um, after Dr. Smith retired. And uh, so Instead of waiting to compile everything into an issue um, for online purposes, when we finish with an article, uh, get it through the copy edit review, copy editing and galley proof stage, we go ahead and publish it online at that article level. And then when we get enough articles to make a, an issue, we put it uh, we put together a, a volume, an issue of the, the journal, and that's available for print if you so desire. Um, but the, the big advantage of that is that the, you don't have to wait quite as long to have something ultimately published because it can be published as soon as it makes it through the process. So really the review process and you as an author working on your edits and get going through the process kind of drives the timeline for your paper. And I'd also add that we, we definitely encourage the practice of practicing veterinarians to submit articles and try to help you partner with academics or industry folks um, for any help in study design, stats, and publishing. I really appreciate uh, uh, our associate editors. You know, when we put the call out to have associate editors take over uh, this role from, from Dr. Smith, and Dr. Smith is probably chuckling because we hired four people to replace him. <laughs> so uh, I think that... Uh, they're all doing such a great job. They're so, I think that when you listen to this podcast, you can, uh, you probably are, are getting the impression that this group of, 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 uh, bovine veterinarians is really passionate about making sure that we continue with the quality of research, 
uh, that is in the bovine practitioner, maintaining that peer review process, as also and also focusing on the practicing veterinarian, uh, the boots on the ground veterinarian that's seeing the beef and dairy cattle uh, in uh, across the world. And, and I think that this information is really focused on them, which is the mission of our organization is to provide resources for our members and for practicing veterinarians, especially. And so, you know, this is uh, the, the funding for the bovine practitioner, as, as Sarah alluded to, we do not have any publication fees at all. Uh, that fund Funding is through member dues. That's how AABP is funded, uh, is through member dues and conference registrations. And so each one of our members uh, is a part of helping to fund uh, the bovine practitioner, as well as our many volunteers that sign up to be reviewers. So I just want to wrap up and say I'm, I'm just really proud uh, that we have taken the bovine practitioner to another level by utilizing the online journal system with our uh, uh, agreement with Texas A&M University. Really thankful for them, uh, our reviewers, our authors, uh, and, and our associate editors. Uh, we have 20 submissions that we've received this year uh, that that uh, that we've sent through the peer review process, and we anticipate that we're going to have articles published uh, very soon, probably by the by the time this pop podcast is published. I just want to remind everyone that we are publishing at the article level, as Sarah alluded to, uh, which will hopefully, with the online submission, peer review process, and publishing at the article level, we're hoping that uh, uh, without uh, you know, we don't want to speed the process, but we want to improve the efficiency of it. So authors that submit have their articles published in a very timely manner. Uh, again, we do not have any publication fees and it is open access. And so our audience uh, uh, is much bigger than it was previously before we started the online project. And then again, want to remind our small ruminant colleagues, we do accept papers for small ruminants and we don't receive many. So really want to encourage our colleagues uh, that are doing research in small ruminants to consider publishing in the bovine practitioner. Uh, and again, remind everyone that if you are a practicing veterinarian, you can submit a paper to the bovine practitioner. As Aurora alluded to, innovative techniques. If you have a, a cool technique that you're doing on uh, for your clients, uh, consider submitting it. Um, it will go through the peer review process, uh, but hopefully that feedback will make you a better writer. And that's one of the goals of the peer review process is not only to make sure that our, our papers are getting uh, uh, through that review process to make sure they're scientifically valid, but also to help authors become better writers and better publishers. Uh, so if you are a practicing veterinarian and you feel very intimidated about publishing, uh, reach out to one of our associate editors, reach out to me. Uh, reach out to some of your uh, um, former professors at, at academic institutions for assistance in study design and how to run statistics, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, oftentimes, it's a team that are submitting articles. And finally, I want to uh, remind our listeners to sign up. Uh, just click on the link that's in the podcast notes to sign up. When you sign up, you'll get a, just an email that says a new, a new article has been published or a new volume has been published. So then you can go read it right away. Uh, it's just a little push notification to you through email. But if you are interested in being a reviewer, when you sign up, just indicate that you do want to be a reviewer. But as Aurora said, please make sure that you are 
uh, indicating your area of expertise. So our team here uh, can can look through those keywords and assign articles to you. And as Virginia said, if you do accept to review, please make sure that you dedicate the time so you don't uh, uh, so you're not the cog in the wheel in getting these papers published for the authors that submit. I really want to thank all of you for participating in the podcast today, as well as your work uh, in continuing to improve and maintain the relevance of the bovine practitioners for our audience, which is that practicing veterinarian. Thanks, everyone. 